community for people who've given up on church but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Aaron. I'm the teaching pastor. So glad you've joined us today. Uh, I thought it'd be fun to kick off with just some Easter numbers, right? Uh, some of y'all know last week, and boy, what a full weekend for us. All began with a Good Friday service. Beautiful, those of you who were part of that. East, uh, on Saturday, uh, we had 50 volunteers, over 50 volunteers who went out to the land. Over 8,000 eggs were hunted for. Uh, we had um, 150 cars that were not volunteer cars, but cars from the community. So you can do the math and guess as to how many folks came out for that hunt. We think somewhere between four and 500. And then, of course, um, Easter Sunday, we had our single largest Easter Sunday ever. Over 500 folks who joined us for one of our two services here. What a weekend. What a weekend. And uh, if you missed it, what you really missed most was a story about naked fishing from the Bible. (laughs) And if that doesn't intrigue you, you will have to go online. I don't know what else to say. We had such a great Easter and just want to thank all of you who were part of that. By the way, if Easter was your first experience with us and you came back, uh, we're so glad that you came back after that uh, great experience. But we, we are thrilled that you're back for a second time, and we, we would love to connect with you. Uh, we have a connection table in the lobby. In fact, if this is your first time, or maybe you've been coming just a couple times, we have a, a special gift for you. We'd love for you to stop back by that table. Just a book that we'd love to give you, our way of saying thanks for coming and checking out stuff here at Westlake. Well, I'm excited to start a new series with you today, Um, and if you're joining us for the first time or online, uh, we hope that today will be a huge encouragement to you. Uh, That's our goal in this series. Uh, You know, there's some defining moments in life that have a way of dividing our lives into kind of a before and an after, right? Moments that kind of divide our life into two. Uh, Think about the first time you learned to ride a bike without crashing. Do you remember that, right? That divided your life before and after. You you forever will know how to ride a bike now. Uh, Or maybe when you got your driver's license, it felt like before was hell and prison, and then afterwards is freedom, right? That's just going to divide your life in two. Uh, Or maybe maybe for some of you, uh, the the birth of a child, Having, having a child can change your life into kind of a before and an after. A friend of mine uh, was fond of saying that there are two phases in life. Uh, he called it the LBC and the LAC, life before child and life after child. He said it was really easy to remember because the life after child, the LAC, was a season of life where you <laughs> lack sleep, you lack money, you lack freedom, and you lack sanity, right? We kind of get a feel for that. Divides our life into before and to after. Well, for Christians, there is one event, one event alone that marks us more than any other. It's the event that divides history into a before and after. And that is the resurrection of Jesus. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus so changed this world and so changed history that for the last 2,000 years, we have actually measured time based on this one man. In fact, this is the year 2018, and tomorrow I will turn 23, and um, we measure 2018 years since what? 
since Jesus, right? Since Jesus. A.D., Anno Domini, means the year of the Lord. Uh, for 2,000 years, the letter B.C. have meant before Christ. And though uh, there have been some recent efforts to erase Jesus from this equation, changing B.C. to B.C.E., before Common Era, one simply cannot erase Jesus from history. The central claim of Christianity is not that Jesus existed, though he did. It is not enough to say that Jesus was a good man or a moral teacher. The central claim of Christianity is that when he died, God raised him from the dead. That is the defining moment. And to be sure, the entire Christian message hinges on this event in history. The whole Jesus movement hinges on this one thing, that the tomb was empty and that Jesus is alive. You see, for Christians, the resurrection is not simply a nice idea or a compelling story. It is actual history. The Apostle Paul put it this way, one of the early followers of Jesus, in a letter he wrote to a first century church, he said this, if Christ has not been raised, if he has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, Paul says, look, either the resurrection is true or it is not. And if it is not, then we should just pack up now and go home. But if it is, if the resurrection is history, then now what? Did you get that shrug? shrug. Did you? Did, how many people actually recognize the shruggy? Does every can we throw that shruggy up? Do we have that? Just so you know what this is, I had to learn this from my kids. You see the shruggy? Now, see now it all makes sense. Here we go. So now what? The validity of the entire Christian faith rests on this one question: Did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? Now, most people think that when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, the burden of proof is on believers to give evidence that it did happen. But that's not completely the case. Let me show you what I mean. In fact, in the first few days uh, after the resurrection, scholars estimate that there were somewhere between 50 and 500 Christians, 50 and 500 believers in Jesus. We don't know the exact number, but it was not many. But 300 years later, somewhere between 40 and 50% of the entire Roman Empire was Christian. That's 30 million people in 300 years. Even before Theodosius made Christianity the national religion, the Jesus movement had taken over the Roman Empire. And my friend, how do we explain that? You see, the resurrection also puts a burden of proof on its non-believers. It's not enough simply to believe Jesus did not rise from the dead. If we do not think the resurrection happened, we must come up with a historically feasible alternative. We must provide some other plausible account for how this whole church thing got started. And so whether you're a Christian or not today, uh, I think this historical question is worthy of some thoughtful assessment. And today, that's what we're going to do. Our goal is a little bit simple. I'm going to put on my best Aaron the professor, not just Aaron the pa- pastor, but Aaron the professor hat. And I want to try and answer this question with you. How, how can, if the resurrection is true, how can a reasonable person believe in the resurrection? That, that's our question. In other words, do, do I have to check my brain at the door when coming into church to believe this whole thing? Or is there reasonable evidence that supports this resurrection. 
Well, just as a side note, today I'm going to be pulling from some of the best in current scholarship on this. Uh, some scholars like Timothy Keller, N.T. Wright, Richard Bachman, many others agree that not only is the resurrection actually possible, they actually believe it's plausible. They actually believe it is the most reasonable explanation for how this Jesus movement got started. And it's a conclusion that I came to on my own in college when I investigated this question as a spiritual explorer. And exploring this allowed me to be touched by the grace of faith in a way that included my intellect instead of violating it. So today I'm going to do my best to lay out as clearly as I can some of the most compelling pieces for me. I'm not going to touch on everything. I'm going to give you four, four reasons, four pieces of evidence that helped turn the tide in my own spiritual journey. I hope they will for you. We game, is that what we're, so get it? There's going to be a little bit of lecture. So uh, there's some room on your connection card, by the way, if you'd like to take notes, I'm going to give you four things for the note takers. Uh, first one is this, first one is this, the eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses. Reason number one, the resurrection is reasonable, is the eyewitnesses. In our day, there's often this idea floating around that goes something like this. Well, Aaron, Jesus probably existed. He was probably a great teacher. He was probably even a good man. But it was all just very human. And that somehow in the ancient world, people were just more gullible or they, they weren't as smart as we are. Really, stories about the resurrection should be thought of as symbolic or as myths. Myths about hope or, or about spring or flowers or the power of reemerging, the power of positive thinking. C.S. Lewis actually calls this line of thinking, he calls it chronological snobbery. Isn't that great? That we somehow think that we are wiser and people of past eras were just more gullible. But the New Testament writers did not see the resurrection this way at all. They were not storytellers, they were eyewitnesses. They understood that what had happened and what they were communicating in their writings was something that was actual history, not myth, not just a good story. In fact, there's a scholar named Richard Bachman who's done a ton of research on this, a book I highly commend uh, called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. He talks about how in the ancient world, uh, there would be people who are quite serious about writing history. And that this was very, a very different genre than myth or folklore. They believed that to do accurate history in their day and age, you had to talk to eyewitnesses who were still alive, who actually experienced or had been participants in the event or war or whatever it was that you were writing the history about. In other words, history in the ancient world was built on eyewitness testimony. And we see this in the Gospel of Luke when he opens his biography about Jesus, his history of Jesus. Luke is one of the guys who wrote one of the four histories of Jesus we have in the Bible. Look at how Luke opens his book to tell us what he's doing. He says this, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first, were, excuse me, just, <laughs> just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, whatever you think about the Bible, whatever you think about this writing, it is not intended to be read as symbolic stories or myths. Luke 
believes he is writing a historical account, one based on eyewitnesses. One of the things that the scholar Bachman points out is that eyewitnesses actually serve the same role as footnotes do in scholarly research today. Y'all know what footnotes are, right? Footnote, a footnote tells you where you can go to verify the facts. That's why research from North Carolina is, is covered in footnotes. And, and when you read research from Duke, there's, there's no footnotes, right? Just um... <laughs> Footnotes are where you can go to verify the facts. Let me give you two examples, because this happens all over the place in the Bible. Because in the Bible, they did not have footnotes in the ancient world. Instead, they cited the names of the eyewitnesses as the footnotes. The names of the people who were there are the ones that you could go to to verify the facts that were being cited. And this happens everywhere. Y'all remember two weeks ago, March 23rd, Palm Sunday, we looked at the thieves on the cross. But you remember, there was another man that Mark mentions at the beginning of that story that has nothing to do with the rest of the story. It's simply the footnote. It's Simon of Cyrene. Do you remember this? He's the man who carries the cross. Mark tells us in his gospel that his two sons were named Rufus and I can't even remember, Thea something, right? And the point was this. Bachman says, look, the reason he mentions these two sons, they're not even there, is because those guys were a part of Mark's church. They're the footnote. Do you want to know if this really happened the way I'm telling you? Go and ask Rufus. He'll tell you. He'll verify it. He's my footnote. There's another one uh, that occurs. Uh, it occurred in our Easter sermon last week. I already mentioned if you were e- with us for Easter, you remember Peter was naked fishing. I don't know why he lost a bet, whatever it was. He's out there naked fishing. John mentions there are six other dudes in the boat with them, and he gives us their names. He says, Simon Peter was there, Thomas, also known as Didymus, in case you forgot he has two names, nickname, Uh, Nathaniel from Cana is there, and the sons of Zebedee. Two other disciples were there, one of whom is John. Why does John not mention his own name? Because it's not cool to cite yourself as your own footnote. Do you see that? But do you see what's happening here? I mean, you read the Bible all the time. You're going, the story's going great. And then there's like three verses of just names. Why are their names there? Those names are there because they are the footnotes so you can fact check this story. The gospel writers were writing history, not men. And this happens everywhere. Now, when I preach, I will sometimes hear people come up to me afterwards and say, you know, Aaron, you tell so many of those crazy stories about like the stupid stuff you've done in life. I'm not sure all those are true. Like, are you making those stories? Are you really that dumb, Aaron, right? Like, did you really drain all your transmission fluid thinking you were changing the oil? Yes. And if you want to verify that fact, all you have to do is go and talk to my family. They're the footnotes, right? They are writing the book over a thousand pages now uh, called Dad's Biggest Blunders. Uh, We're going to have it on sale eventually here at church. It'll be great. See, the first piece of evidence, the first piece of evidence of the resurrection is that the church The Bible and the apostles all rely on eyewitness accounts for the credibility of this resurrection. That's the first piece. The second one builds on this. The second piece of evidence that's so compelling, at least to me, I find this one so striking, is what I'd like to call the women. The women. It's what sometimes scholars refer to as the testimony of the women. Let me see if I can set this up. You see, there's something very interesting that happens in all four of the Gospels. All four accounts do the same thing. 
All four accounts in the Bible mention that women were the first to witness the empty tomb. Women were the first to witness the resurrected Lord. In fact, Luke goes on to describe it this way. He says, it it was Mary Magdalene, watch the names, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed seemed to them like nonsense. It's like the men had their fingers in their ears when the women came to them. They're all, la, 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 I'm not listening to you. I know it's hard to believe that there were ever men who would struggle with good listening skills. But this is exactly what happens, right? The women, they come and they say, hey, guys, Jesus is risen. We saw the empty tomb. He appeared to us. They don't believe it. Now, whatever else is going on here, there's something interesting in the background. You see, in the ancient world, the testimony of a woman was highly suspect. The testimony of a woman carried almost no weight at all. For the Jews, the testimony of a woman was strictly prohibited. You simply could not bring a woman to court. And in the Roman courts, the testimony of a woman was only admitted as a last resort. You only had a woman testify if you had no men to testify. And even then, it was considered shameful to drag a woman into court. So... If you were making up stories about an empty tomb and a resurrected Lord, why would you cite women? Why would all four Gospels mention women as the first witnesses to the resurrection? Even more so, why would Luke mention Mary Magdalene, a a single woman with a questionable past, as the first to see Jesus? The only reasonable conclusion as to why women are listed as the first witnesses to the resurrection is because women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. And I just love Jesus here. Just a quick little side. I just love Jesus here. Because 2,000 years before any of our modern women's movements, Jesus was confronting an unjust culture and he was giving dignity to women like nobody in the world had ever seen But that's a sermon for another day. If this were made up stuff, there would have been immense pressure on these gospel writers to change the story. But all four of them persist in telling the facts. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, it's a a powerful, apologetic reminder of the historical accuracy of the resurrection accounts. If these were cleverly devised myths, women would never have been presented as the first eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. First piece of evidence, the eyewitnesses, literally hundreds of them. Second piece of evidence, the testimony of the women. And the third piece of evidence is this. Third piece of evidence is those who gave their lives for the message they proclaimed, what I'm going to call the martyrs. The word martyr is a Greek word that simply means witness. And we know from history, uh, and what we know from history, excuse me, is that every one of the 12 apostles, except for John, who was assigned to take care of Jesus' aging biological mother, Mary, all 12 of the apostles, except for John, all of them died violent deaths because of their faith in Jesus. They were all martyred for this message they proclaimed. And perhaps more than anything else, their death validates their message. 
Now, some will argue, Aaron, uh, I don't know. I mean, didn't these guys enjoy some fame and some notoriety, some privilege in their day? Uh, you know, my friend, if you've ever been told that or thought that, I, I want to spotlight a couple things uh, to you from history because this simply ignores the facts. These men were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were harassed. Many of them were shunned from their families and their communities. We know that they gave up homes and fields and businesses in order to follow Jesus. And the question is, why would they have sacrificed so much? Why would they have suffered so much? Why would they have died for something they knew wasn't true? It doesn't prove the resurrection like we would prove it in a laboratory. But my friends, it is a compelling, compelling piece of evidence. As Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and physicist, puts it, he says, I believe those witnesses who got their throats cut. Virtually all the apostles and all the early Christian leaders died for their faith. And it is hard, and it is hard to believe that this kind of powerful self-sacrifice would be done to support a hoax. If I'm a betting man, my money is on the guys who died for the message they proclaimed. Fourth and final piece of evidence is this. The movement itself. The movement itself. See, this, this amazing movement grew up around Jesus, this rabbi. He taught like no one had ever taught. He did things that no one had ever done. He spoke about a God of love, a God who cared about justice and the poor and the disenfranchised. And he said that God had a plan to renew and to restore this broken world. And there was this amazing group, this movement that grew up around Jesus. But then Friday came and he died. And, and y'all understand, on Saturday, there was nothing left of this movement. The movement was over. His followers scattered. That was it. Close the book. And then on Sunday, it was suddenly on again. A lot of people don't understand this, but Christianity is unique among faiths in this way. It is the only faith, it is the only religion in our world that did not develop gradually over time. One day it did not exist, the next day it did, and people were ready to die for it. And as a matter of historical fact, they did die for it. Jesus is just so matter-of-fact about this. It's almost comical when we read it. His resurrection is what gave birth to the church. And Matthew describes it this way. The first church worship service, the very first gathering where he was hailed and worshipped as Lord happened on that Sunday. It was, goes like this. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings! It's actually in, in the original language, you know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, hey, what's up? It's like the common casual, hey, how's, it, how's your day going? He just appears, hey, hey guys, how's it going? They came to him, they clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. You see, just a week earlier, the women, the men, the disciples had sat at his feet as teacher, but now on Sunday they sit clasping his feet, worshipping him as Lord. Yesterday, he was a crucified criminal, a failed Messiah. And then three days later, he is Lord of the universe and they worship him. And his way, the way of servanthood and humility and self-sacrifice was not thwarted by the cross. In fact, it turned the cross into the most recognizable symbol in all of human history. 
And this movement, this Jesus movement, the church, has gone on to establish little outposts on every continent, in every country, schools and hospitals and orphanages and universities, not because of a fictional story or a fabricated account, but because the tomb was really empty and Jesus was really alive. You see, the evidence points to the fact that the resurrection is history. But the scriptures go beyond just history because the resurrection changed everything and the resurrection has the power to change you and me as well. And as I think about this, this is perhaps the most mysterious, the most powerful thing I know about the resurrection. That the Bible says there is a kind of power through the spirit of God that lives in you and me and anyone who would put their faith and trust in Jesus, the power to change, the power to live, the power to live beyond the grave. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians. He says the same mighty power that is at work in us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Isn't that provocative? That the same power that raised him from the dead can be at work In you? Peter describes it this way in a letter he wrote to a church. He says this, Praise be to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A hope that lives. A power that changes. See, more than just history, the question that we have to answer is, What is the significance of the resurrection to us? What is the significance of the resurrection to you? Over time, there grew up in these little communities called churches, this this word that began to be associated with the resurrection. And it's the word that Peter mentions. It's this word, hope. More than any other word, the, the early followers of Jesus connected hope And resurrection, because it was the history of the resurrection, the power made available to them, that now gave them hope. And I want to end just by sharing three things that I think matter for us when it comes to this hope. Three hopes that we can have because of the resurrection. And the first is this. We can hope, we can have hope for change. See, the thing you struggle with in life does not have to be the last word in your story. Because of the resurrection, hope is always the last word. Addiction doesn't have to be the last word. Failed business or marriage doesn't have to be the last word. Cancer is not the last word. My inability or or unwillingness to express love and affection to my loved ones does not have to be the last word. Unforgiveness does not have to be. Bitterness, rage, these do not have to be the last words in our lives. Change is possible. Why? Because the same power that raised him from the grave is at work in you. Hope for change. You don't have to be the same person today that you were yesterday. Why? Because of the resurrection. Power is available to you that you can become more and more the person God created you to be. Look, you you will never be sinless. Being being a Christian is not about becoming sinless. We will never be sinless. But the truth is that we can sin less in our lives. 
Did you like that? I thought that was really clever. <laughs> I didn't make that one up. But see, there's hope. I'm not stuck being, I'm going to turn 43 tomorrow. 40, my 43rd year can be a new day, a new year for me. I am not stuck being the same Aaron I was this last year. There's hope for me, hope for change, because Christ is raised from the dead, and that same mighty power is at work in me. But there's a second thing we can hope for because of the resurrection, and that's that we can hope for justice. You see, we all face injustice in this world, don't we? I mean, everywhere we turn, we see brokenness and disease and violence. There is so much messed up stuff in this world. Uh, in, in the words of Kip from Napoleon Dynamite, you just kind of want to go, toad, toad, dude, toad, right? The world's just messed up. What injustice gets you most heated, most angry, most dispirited? Is it economic inequality? Is it racial conflict? Is it human trafficking and sexual degradation that has reached a high point in history? What is the injustice in the world that causes you to lose sleep? Because you see, the good news of the resurrection is that Jesus is coming back to judge. Judgment is coming. Now, we don't often think of judgment as a good thing, do we? But here's what that means. Because Jesus is alive, because he is resurrected, he is coming back to right every wrong in this world. He is not done with his renewal project. And we can have hope when we face injustice that one day it will be made right. One last thing that we can hope for because of the resurrection is this. We can have hope in the face of death. I was thinking this week about um, my good friend, Matthew. Matthew was my best friend uh, when I was single. We were roommates from, gosh, age 19, was it 19? All the way up until we got married. Uh, and just a few years after Merrill and I got married, Matthew was killed. He was hit, hit by a car getting out of his truck uh, out in front of his house. And I remember racing to the hospital. And I, at that point in my life, I'd never been inside of an ICU room. Many of you have have uh, sadly had to visit that kind of space. And I stood in that ICU room looking at this lifeless body in front of me. And, and the picture was so compelling. He was on life support. and There were machines that were breathing for him and pumping his blood for him. But it was apparent to me that Matthew was not there. That there was a body, but it was a lifeless body. There was a body that for lack of those machines would, would not be alive anymore. And I remember standing in that room for the first time in my life, realizing the hope that we have because of the resurrection. That death does not get the last word. That death does not have sting. And I remember praying, I said, God, I don't know how to trust you for this, but I want to trust because I know that one day this body will live again. And that one day I will be able to look in Matthew's eyes again because of your resurrection. Would you give me that hope? You see, you don't have to believe in the resurrection. But if you do, I want you to know this, that perhaps the most compelling piece of evidence of all is the change that can occur in you and me when we will put our faith in Jesus. Maybe the greatest evidence of all just might be the hope the life and the power 
that he will give to you. Let's pray.